If you would, please open up with me in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. So you're opening up to Malachi chapter 3. It's our last sermon in chapter 3. We have one more to go in this not too lengthy compared to, for instance, the Gospel of Luke or something like that sermon series, but uh, this is the penultimate one. Uh, we've been in Haggai. We've been in Zechariah, and now we have been in Malachi, these prophets who uh, are coming uh, at uh, uh, the, uh, um, the moment when, uh, sometimes uh, uh, you might see it as, as the moment before the sun rises, that is, the moment before Jesus comes. There's a stretch of some hundreds of years in between Malachi and the birth of the Lord Jesus, but, but this is... Uh, at, the close of the Old Testament canon as we know it. This is, this is what the Lord has for us at the end. And chronologically speaking, there are, uh, are probably some pieces that would fall after Malachi. For instance, some psalms and, uh, uh, for instance, some of the latter parts of uh, Chronicles, which is this chronicling, uh, in all likelihood, by Ezra, uh, the, the scribe, which is where the scribely uh, tradition takes place, but uh, this, this, uh, uh, this, this uh, a chronicling of, of God's work through his people over time. And we find ourselves here at the end of this letter from God's messenger, because remember Malachi literally means my messenger. All right, Malachi, okay? It's like an angel. Uh, that's the, the same word for my angel, okay? So this, this messenger from God is coming with a hard word. He, he has been uh, almost going toe-to-toe -to -toe, uh, with people's unbelief. Not any people, though. God's people's unbelief. What does that even mean? God's people's unbelief. How do we match those two things? What does this look like then for us now as, we, as we're trying to close out this series, as, as we're trying to uh, move into a thankful season, right? Thanksgiving, Christmas, all of these different things that we celebrate. What, what does this look like? This is going to sound very obvious, but it's more profound and more difficult than it initially sounds. It's the main point this morning. A perfect penultimate point. That is a point before the last one, right? God's people will be known as God's people. Period. God's people will be known as God's people. It's the main point of chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And 18. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, asking him to open up our eyes for the reading of this word, and then we'll read God's word to see this point. Oh, Heavenly Father, God, please reveal yourself. Show us who we are to be. And Lord, that means you show us who we really are without you. And you show us who we are with you. Because when we see who we are, we see you even fuller. Because God, our own imperfections condemn. And as your light shines brighter and brighter, we can do nothing and yet call out to you for mercy. And you are there ready to answer with the gospel. 
of your own creation, the good news of the Lord Jesus. And so God, please, would you reveal these things to us from Malachi chapter 3, your message to your people. Would you do it in Jesus' name? Amen. Malachi chapter 3, starting with verse 16. Just three verses. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains. It stands forever. Thanks be to God. God's people will be known as God's people. Three points for three verses. The book of remembrance, God's treasured possession, and distinction. Okay? Very straightforward. You'll find the words in each of those verses. All right? That's nice. Uh, so to give us a tiny bit of context of where we are in this letter, uh, God revealed uh, to, to his people throughout the course of this that they're really messing up. Their heart is not in the right place that God has super abundantly blessed them, has not totally condemned them because of their unfaithfulness, which sent them into exile, right? That was an exile of their own doing. In the book of Deuteronomy, it's quite clear. You see it in Joshua as well. If you listen and obey and you follow these things I'm telling you, you'll stay here forever. If not, you're going to go into exile for about 70 years. Okay, it's straightforward and you see it. And what do people do? What do the people do? They break God's commands over and over and over and go into exile. But God in his mercy and his grace remembers his people and pulls them home. It's a homecoming. But now he's slamming them with a heart check because their sin is still reigning over them. And yet God doesn't change because of his people's sin. God pays for his people's sin, even as he has promised from the very beginning in the garden as Adam and Eve bold-faced sin before the Lord there. And so we see that here continuing. We see this unchanging character of God and the good news and, and really the continuation of the good news into the people's lives. <coughs> Excuse me. What you see is that, is that salvation, uh, the moment of, is just that, the moment. But we don't stop existing then. So what do we do now? What does that look like and how does it play out? And what is this thing that we call, for instance, for us, the Christian life following after God? Well, when we take up a Bible passage like we have before us, especially verse 16, which remember is our first point, this book of remembrance, right? Oh, what a word. What a concept. People like to get bogged down in such things. And when we take up such a Bible passage, such a concept as this, the danger for us is to think about ourselves only and neglect the larger truths, the truths of God. What's the Bible about? Is it about you 
or is it about God, right? The answer is that it's about God and, and, and God's emphasis is you. The Bible is about God, okay? God's emphasis is his people. We have to have that clear in our minds or we are but selfish children not understanding the realities of the situation. And when we come to something like the book of remembrance, we so desperately want to remove God out of it and grab this big old book and check the ledger for our name. Our, me, myself, and I. We look at the people here then. And we superimpose ourselves in their place if we're not careful. And we try to snatch comfort by thinking about our names being written in the book. Yes, yes, I have confessed in the Lord Jesus. My name is certainly in the book. Or a different form of selfishness and pride. Is my name written in the book, Lord? Have I done enough for you? taking away the Bible verse and only thinking about this, this concept of the book of remembrance. That, that's so easy to do. What, what I'm talking about, which is just like kind of thinking about this book and figuring out if we're in it or what it's about. But, but doing that, it, it has no foundation and it doesn't really grant any lasting comfort or any lasting information about God. Really, it just grants more exhaustion because that kind of faulty interpretation taking a, a theme or a concept or a piece out of the Bible and just holding it and just wanting that thing alone when, when we do that with something like the book of remembrance uh, it, it really puts us in the place of what the world tries to do to feel comforted which is uh, if you work hard enough I'm going to put your name in my book and I'm going to love you because of it that's what this book is. It's my ledger. And if I open it up and I find your name there, you'll have access to me. And if not, you'll never see me again. The world works like that. I surely don't have to tell you this. Surely. And it's brutal. And it's terrible. And even people who don't believe in the Lord, they despise it even as they find themselves bound by it. But when we take up God's word, things are better. Notice the emphasis of verse 16, truly. What is the emphasis? Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The implication being they spoke with one another about the Lord. Then the Lord paid attention and the Lord heard them, right? He paid attention, that's one, and he heard. The Lord paid, the Lord heard. A book of remembrance was written before who? The Lord. Of those who feared who? The Lord. And who is this filled with? It's those who esteem whose name? The Lord's, right? What's the emphasis of verse 16 that... It's a super emphasis on God himself. And here's the point. This is what we are to take as God's people. Is that, is that God's people will be known as God's people. In other words, this, their names will be found in the book because of what they emphasize. And what are God's people emphasizing? It's not a what, it's a who. They're emphasizing God. 
Here's another way to look at this. Which came first, the book or the emphasis, the faith? Let's use an example from Scripture to let the Lord speak. Because Abraham himself, who was called by God, went. Circumcision was a promise that he took part in. But what was the thing that saved him? Do you remember? Have you read, for instance, the book of Romans or Galatians? He believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. It was a given faith that saved Abraham. It was a given faith that allowed him to emphasize God. And what did Abraham do from there? He went. When God said, go and sacrifice your son, your only one, Abraham said, come on, boy, let's go. And it's so hard for us to believe and Jesus would say, oh, ye of little faith, what happens next? Because Abraham didn't hesitate. We try to make that word emotional. Oh, he had feelings. But his faith overrode any sinful feeling. Book of Hebrews tells us this. Abraham was ready to drop the knife into his son's chest. Because either A... God would provide a ram in the thicket, which he did. Or B, God must be able to rise people from the grave because God had already promised him that Isaac would live and that the nations would be blessed through his family through him. Abraham's faith was everything. His actions, it's just what came next. Maybe I could say it like this. God's people will be known as God's people. Here's an important follow-up question then. What's the book for? <laughs> Why is it here? What are the works for? If God is sovereign, and if God has saved you, who cares? Well, first of all, God told us, for instance, if we wanted to stay in the book of Romans, should we sin that grace may abound? By no means. We should be after those things that God has laid down for us. And so, yes, of course, in one way, as we are saved and as we are believing in the work of the Lord Jesus on our behalf, God's people will be God's people and that they will want to listen to their heavenly Father. And so they'll move and breathe in the laws that have been laid down. But that's not all. It's never all for the Lord. He always uses things multiplicatively. He always uses things for more than one reason. His, his infinite wisdom is so hard for us to track that we only see it in bare measure. And then, even then, when we see it, are we astounded by the wisdom that is only a partial bit of the reality of what's going on. And so as we move... And as we live, and as we breathe after God, as we pick up our cross, and as we, God's people, are being known as God's people by, 
by seeking to listen and obey, to worship God and to grow into him day by day, putting away sin and moving towards him. As all of these things are playing out, he gives us something and it's called assurance. What would a book be good for? What would it really be good for? Be good for keeping something for you over time, right? Knowledge or a fact. I have saved you, is what the Lord says. Now let me write it in a book and keep it forever to remind you that I have saved you. It's assurance upon assurance. The preacher that we know is the author of this letter to the Hebrews, it's a sermon. And in his sermon, what is he saying? He's saying God doesn't have to promise anything to you. He's already said it. If he says, I'll save you, it's as good as done. If he says something, he'll do it. That's what God's word is good for. So why does he promise? To give you assurance. Why does he give you a rainbow? To give you assurance. Yes, it's the refracting of light. We don't have to put those things at odds ends. So some scientist tries to tell you that, uh, that rainbows are simply the refracting of light or something like that, as if it disproves the reality of why God made the rainbow in the first place. Assurance. Why did he give you his word? He doesn't have to. He just saved you. He does it. That you might be assured of such things. That you might have joy and contentment and peace in this life. Those things you so desperately crave. I know it because I speak with you. I know what you are missing. He goes on. Not only is there this book of remembrance, but second, we see God's people as, as God's own treasured possession. Verse 17, remember, God's people will be known as God's people. And, and so we start out with an objective truth in verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In one sense, we could stop everything right there. God has special ownership of his people. God's people will be God's people, period, done. Says it in verse 17, amen, let's pray, right? But God doesn't stop at the objective point of ownership. He could do that. He's God, but he chooses not to. And he adds an immense amount of depth. He adds weight and relationship to the equation. Did you notice it in verse 17? There's a day coming when all of God's people will be gathered into his very presence. And with this, and when this happens, the word tells us that, that God is going to make these scattered people of his. He's going to draw them in and they are going to be uh, and make up his special treasured possession. Wow. But there's more. Because that's still object, right? Uh, I could, for instance, gather um, uh, baseball cards. And it's my special treasure, right? I love cards or something, you know, whatever it might be. But it, it's not object. There's relationship in this. My grandfather-in-law, he has since gone on to be with the Lord. His name is James we call him Papa. 
Uh, Papa asked for one thing for Christmas. I think every year that I knew him, which was for well over a decade, he has uh, eight children, Rebecca? Is that eight? He has eight children. And his one ask for Christmas, would you come home and be with me? He asked it the first year and I thought, oh wow, that's sweet. He asked it the second year and I said, okay, that's cool. Third, fourth, five, six, seven, eight, all the way until he died. He asked one thing for Christmas. Children, would you come home to me? And, and the more I think about that, as my own children grow, as our own families are spread apart, would you come and would you gather together my treasured possession, my family? God doesn't have objects for his treasured possession. He has people, and his people are really his children. Children that carry the full weight of God's parental love and protection. And if you didn't know it, it's made clear in verse 17 of Malachi chapter 3. Romans 8, chapter 8. Uh, excuse me, Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Have you ever considered what it means to be God's treasured possession? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Before all creation was known, in their perfect harmony and communion with one another, had a plan laid forth to reveal the Godhead, the one true God, in his fullness, just and justifier, perfectly loving and perfectly righteous, and everything in between. Stay with me on this. God the Father chose to reveal himself as God the Father. That's why we know him as Father. He could have chose to reveal himself as God the Elephant. And I am not being coy or crass with the Lord. If he wanted to reveal himself that way, he could have. But he didn't. He revealed himself as Father. Jesus the Son could have revealed himself as Jesus the Brother. We know him as elder brother, but he is Jesus the Son. And we see that from the Word when God says, Behold, my Son, with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. And so now we have Father and Son. And a relationship that is revealed, that is broken on this side of the world by so many worldly fathers and worldly sons. Each of you know that. Some worse than others. Daughters as well. Y'all know. 
So now we have this relationship in the Godhead. God is revealing something to his people in this. And God gives his son. And the son willingly goes. Chooses to go and sacrifice himself. The father chooses to send and not spare. And as God the Father and God the Son enact this, this, uh, this uh, salvation plan, the Holy Spirit reveals it to us piece by piece and part by part throughout time in our real lives. And in that moment, as we begin to see that Jesus the Son, this is God, lowered himself below Jeremiah the son and Nancy the daughter Julie the daughter Amy the daughter Rod the son Larry the son all of us who confess in the Lord Jesus the children of God take a place above the Lord Jesus in the father's eyes for he did not spare his own son but gave him up that he might bring us in. This is not a joke. God is not a joke. The gospel is not a joke. God's people will be known as God's people. And we will take very seriously what God has done for us. Once you've experienced this love, once you've begun to try to plumb the depths of this love, you will be different from the world. You will choose to separate yourself from the darkness and from the sins, and you will follow after God. When we see that God treasures us as his treasured possessions, maybe we could put it like this. Our own treasure will be in heaven where God is. And by the way, that treasure is kept for us. If you remember Jesus' words in his sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, that treasure, it's imperishable. No moth or rust can get to it. It's an inheritance kept for you by God himself. And so not only does he give, not only does he reveal, not only does he assure, but he keeps. And that is the gospel, his treasured possession. And this brings us to our third point, distinction. Verse 18, God's people will be known as God's people. And people who don't want to be God's people will be known as not God's people. Verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God 
and one who does not serve him. The people of God had a problem at the time. They couldn't distinguish the righteous from the wicked. They thought the wicked uh, were the ones who were getting blessed and the righteous were the ones who were getting punished. And so they said, well, wait a second. Does that mean that God really thinks that wicked is righteous and righteous is wicked, right? You know what? What's going on? We don't understand. Aren't we supposed to get something for our faith? Aren't we supposed to get something like some money or some food, right? Aren't we supposed to get something? This, this something that was clouding their vision, and that's the point for us. And this is where we need to make sure that the distinction is made in the right place. Because this would be easy, this point, this concept, if it weren't addressed to the church. Hear me well. It's obvious to go outside the fellowship. If I went outside, right, uh, from the church... And I just walked down the street and I finally found somebody who hates God. I wouldn't have to go far, okay? Just bring up that you're a Christian to people. Just do it for a week and see what happens, all right? I wouldn't have to go far and say, hey, are you a lover or are you a hater of God? Well, say, I, I hate God or I don't believe in God. I say, cool, let's compare notes. Let me tell you what I'm like, you know, let me just go through my process, you know, read a little bit of the Bible. Here's what I do with my family, you know, this is what I do with my sons and my daughters, what we do with discipline. This is kind of what we focus on, right? This is what we emphasize. This is what we don't emphasize. All right, now your turn, right? Let's just see. Let's just compare notes. It, it wouldn't take long for us to realize, oh, there's a clear distinction, right? You've chosen to do something and I do something different. Cool. We're distinct, right? It would be easy to do that with someone who hates God. But what about inside the church? You know, I'm not preaching to the world. I'm preaching to you. God's not speaking to the world. God's speaking to you. This sermon series is almost over. Homecoming and heart checks. Serving God in the present. It's not an aspiration. It's a requirement. It's not a hope to serve God. It's a reality. There is hope built into it. And it's not salvation by works, it's because you have been saved if you are one confessing in the Lord Jesus. God's people will be known as God's people. And if they're not, then we must consider if they were ever God's people to begin with. And that's heavy. And that's hard. But it's a heart check that we all need. It's sobering. But it's a sober world we live in. And so instead of application, let me give you a few heart checks. They will know you by your fruit. That's what Jesus said. What fruit are you bearing? Will you do this with me? Will you really do this with me? Each of you. Will you be serious for a moment about your spirituality? What fruits are you bearing? Because you will be known by them. 
What are you known by? What are you known by? Faith without works is dead. That's what James tells us. But what works are we talking about? What do you do? What takes up your time? Why? Be serious about this for a moment. And think about your own spirituality. If the God of the universe would place himself, this is Jesus, would place himself below you and would seek to save you, and you say yes and amen, I believe that. What are you doing and why? Are you lying? And why? Who is that helping? No one. Is your love of God greater than your love of this world? And before you Sunday school answer me with a yes, how do you measure it? Is your love of God greater than your love of this world? That's not the hard part. Because you can say yes or no immediately. I want you to think about how you measure it. How do you measure that? You measure it by how long you've done your quiet time or something? It's a tricky one. And so if you're going to be serious, remember how you measure that question. Is your love of God greater than the love of this world? And then lastly, humility is a vital mark of the Christian. Because inherently, inherently we must be humble to cry out to God and to say, save me, God. And so are you humble? And how do you measure it? Because if you say, yes, I'm humble, you might have already failed. I don't know. God's people will be known as God's people. It is time for us to recognize this. This isn't a centennial thing. This isn't a Columbia thing. It's not an America thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a God thing. It's a Christianity thing. It's a God's people thing. Because he's pulling in people from every nation. He's gathering in his treasured possession. And we must be ones who are truly and rightly following after him. It's not money. It's not numbers. If it was, we would be the most successful. But do you feel that way in your own life? Is that maybe passing or failing the humility test? Do you feel successful spiritually in your own life? Can you ever say yes? I think you can. But how would you answer it? Just you. You in the mirror. These are the things that we must begin to mine from the depths of the scriptures. It's what God is calling us to. It's what he has done though and take comfort here because I dare not end us on something negative. Because, because God from the beginning has continually called to his people and assured them that he is bringing them in. And he has assured them that he will give them grace and mercy. That their sins are paid for. That they are nailed to the cross. 
by the gospel, the good news, by God himself who went there and died for you, if you believe. But it will affect your life. Don't fool yourself. It will affect your life and you will be different. You will be different with your children. You will be different with your family. You will be different with your friends. You will be different at work. You will be different at church. I paused for intensity. You will be different everywhere you go and people will know who you are. Measure it. It's very important. Perhaps the most important thing you'll ever do in your entire life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. A hard word and a strong word and a good word. Because God, you don't leave us alone. You reveal to us the gospel of Jesus. You reveal that you wouldn't withhold your own son. That you would make us sons and daughters. And bring us into the kingdom as a treasured possession of yours. Written indeed in a book of remembrance forever. And so God, thank you. Thank you. You are our mighty fortress. Oh God, may we take shelter in thee. Lord, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.